Hello, my name's Florence. Welcome to the OBS pod. I'm an NHS obstetrician, hoping to share some thoughts and experiences about my working life. Perhaps you enjoy Call the Midwife, maybe birth fascinates you, or you're simply curious about what exactly an obstetrician is. You might be pregnant and preparing for birth. Perhaps you work in maternity and want to know what makes your obstetric colleagues tick, or you want some fresh ideas and inspiration. Whichever of these is the case, and for that matter, anyone else that's interested, the OBSPOD is for you. Episode 5, Balance. So I realised that I've spent a couple of episodes talking about my training in obstetrics without necessarily detailing quite a lot of what obstetrics is. So all women will be looked after by midwives during their pregnancies. But some women will also be looked after by obstetricians, doctors experienced in maternity care. So in the UK, we have a midwifery-based system. And when women start their pregnancy and book in with a midwife, a midwife will do quite a long assessment of that woman's needs. What are her pre-existing medical conditions? What is her overall health like? What problems, if any, has she had in previous pregnancy? And they will decide whether or not that woman is what we call low risk and suitable for all her care to be delivered by midwives, or whether there's something a little bit more complicated, which unfortunately, sometimes is called high risk and that therefore she needs to see an obstetrician at some point during her pregnancy. High risk isn't a great terminology. I've had women sent to see me because they're in inverted commas high risk and they found this an alarming fact when they've seen the midwife to be told you're high risk, you need to go and see an obstetrician. But all that really means is that they need someone additional involved in their care during their pregnancy. So like an extra member of the team. Think of it like a belt to hold up your trousers maybe, rather than just the trousers themselves. And we work in very, very close partnership with midwives. Um, I have a number of midwifery teams that I am the link consultant for. And we chat back and forth a lot about women under our care and which women I need to see and which women I don't. So women may be sent to see me because they've got some pre-existing medical problem or mental health problem, or it may be that they've got a number of risk factors such as being overweight, smoking, or a slightly older age. We're seeing much higher numbers of women in their 40s getting pregnant and having babies these days. On average, over the course of my career, the average age of a mother having her first baby when I started in 1994 was 26. Now it's nearly 31. So times have changed considerably. So another reason why a woman might be asked to see me is if she's had problems in a previous pregnancy that might be recurrent, such as gestational diabetes, that's diabetes that occurs in pregnancy, or blood pressure problems, or growth problems of her baby. Also women having multiple pregnancies, that is usually 
twins or very rarely triplets will also have consultant input, as will women who develop a problem during a pregnancy. So the baby may be breech, bottom down, or they may have a placenta that's covering the neck of the womb. Placenta is the afterbirth. So there may be a number of reasons why at a later point in pregnancy, they're asked to come and see me. And it's really important when I see women in clinic to think about listening, really hearing what they're saying and what they're concerned about. And often when I ask women, what what are you hoping to get out of today? It's quite different to what I expected. So I may think the midwife sent them because of a number of risk factors, but they want to know what position should I sleep in? Can I exercise safely? Am I all right to go on holiday on this date when I'll be however many weeks pregnant? How can I get to hospital when I don't drive? Will I be able to get my parents over from another country to be able to help me with childcare? It's also really important in antenatal clinic to give people time to talk So there are lots of studies that show that on average, a doctor interrupts a patient in a consultation about 11 seconds is the average time that we allow people to talk before we step in. And you probably know that I'm recording this during the COVID crisis. And if you think about the fact that we're being asked to wash our hands for 20 seconds, that gives you an idea how long 11 seconds actually is. It isn't very long um, before we doctors interrupt. So it's really important when we train and as we practice that we get comfortable with silence. And I've always found this quite difficult. I'm quite a chatty person, hence this podcast. But actually, I did a coaching qualification at one point during my career. And one of the hardest things I found was to be quiet and give people silence and space um, to think and talk and get off their chest what they really need to say. And it's the same in my clinic. Um, Often if I take time and I try not to interrupt and I leave that silence, a woman may open up about something unexpected, disclose a problem that she finds difficult to talk about. So It's really important that in the rush of clinic, when we've got a lot of women to see, that we give them time and space because we'll get a much better understanding of their lives and their issues if we do so. So there are lots of different things that are actually important to women, not just the clinical care they receive, because this is a massive turning point in their lives, the building of a family. So that's a brief dip into my role in antenatal clinic. So what is my role on the labour ward? Women give birth in a number of settings. So they have a choice about midwifery-led care on a midwifery-led unit. And this can be either what's called freestanding, which is separate on its own, or alongside, so attached to an obstetric unit. Um, which is the sort of alongside midwifery unit we have at my hospital. They can give birth at home, which I will come on to talk about in a future podcast. And they can give birth on the main obstetric 
labour ward. And the difference about the obstetric labour ward is in general, we see women that have got complications or need epidural pain relief or perhaps have been induced. So their labour has been started artificially because we're concerned about them or their baby. Or they've got risk factors from a previous birth. Perhaps they've bled a lot after they had their last baby or perhaps they've had a cesarean before and are having what's called a VBAC or vaginal birth after cesarean. So usually our labour ward is full of women that have slight complications. So midwives will be looking after the women. So each woman will have a midwife with them one-to-one and the obstetricians, the doctors, will be a team of doctors on looking after all the women that are in labour that day. So we'll come in and out of the room, but we won't be there all the time. And we will be involved by the midwives when things seem to be going just a little bit off course. So a lot of what we do is being in the background, being the supporting act, being invisible. And I did actually write a poem about this a few years ago. My voice. I'm an essential part of the team, usually the lead, yet you may never meet me. A key part of my role is to stand back and do nothing, to teach others how to do likewise. I champion choice and experience. I am the invisible woman. Who am I? I have to master the art of being there only at the critical time to run in and save the day. I have to build trust in a matter of seconds. My heart is pounding, the adrenaline's flowing, yet my face is calm. I walk a tightrope, an impossible balance, no room for error. Who am I? And I wanted to read that to you because it really sums up how I feel. So it's really important not to do too much to intervene unnecessarily and cause problems that way. But also you don't want to miss something when there's a problem, when there's a complication. You don't want to miss something and inadvertently do harm by doing so. But one of the key things I have to do is actually do nothing. Stand back let nature take its course. So to be able to do that, it's really important that trainee obstetricians and midwives and medical students understand labour. And labour is not an exact science. Labour is a powerful thing. And when we teach the medical students, we talk about the powers, the passage and the passenger. So the powers are predominantly the contractions. And although we have a monitor that can tell us how frequent the contractions are, it can't tell us how strong they are. We do that by placing our hands on the woman's abdomen. And this is called palpation. And this is why I say it's not really a science, because we can feel the womb tightening and hardening. It's actually an amazing organ and a raising muscle. So what we can do is assess, do we think the contractions are strong and how often are they coming? So there are quite a lot of things we can do to adjust the contractions naturally. 
making sure the woman is well hydrated. She's had stuff to eat. She's up and about. And then there are two drugs we can use. One is called syntocinon. That's synthetic oxytocin. So that makes more contractions. And then the other thing that we can do if we think we've got too many contractions is to give something called tibutylene, which actually um, relaxes the smooth muscle of the womb and stops the contractions. So quite limited what we can do with the contractions. The passage is the woman's pelvis, the bones, the muscles and the organs within it. And although we can't do a lot to adjust the pelvis, moving around, walking around in labour, staying upright, various positions can help maximise the diameters of the pelvis and give the baby the maximum possible space to come through the birth canal. And then the final um, P is the passenger. And the passenger is obviously the baby. And the baby is obviously a, a specific size. But babies' heads are incredible. They're made up of several bones and the bones are not joined. So not like a adult skull that's all fused together and hard. There are bones with soft gaps between. And this means that the baby's head can mould um, as it comes down through the pelvis um, and pass safely through the birth canal. So one of the things that can change about the passenger, the baby, is obviously the baby's size. But actually, the other thing is the position that the baby comes down into the pelvis in and how it rotates during labour. So the normal mechanism of labour is that the baby's head comes down into the pelvis, descends and engages. That means it's then fixed in the pelvis. The baby's neck flexes. That means the chin tucks into the baby's chest so that the baby's nicely tucked in with the top of the back of the head being the presenting bit. Then the baby internally rotates. So most babies come down into the pelvis sideways. So their spine to their mum's side and looking either left or right. And as the baby comes down into the pelvis, it rotates, internal rotation, so that most babies get into what's called an occipito anterior position. So that means the baby's head, the back of the baby's head is facing the woman's front and the baby's face is actually facing the woman's bottom. Then as the baby comes down, it's called crowning, which is when the baby's head is stretching the tissue around the opening to the vagina and the birth canal. Imagine you've got a crown on your head. And then actually the baby, remember it flexed its head, put its chin to its chest. The baby's born by extension of its head. So it actually lifts its head up off its chest and extends. And that's how the baby's head comes out. And then after the baby's head comes out, you get internal rotation again. So the back comes around to the side again and restitution and the baby's shoulders come through. So for any doctor who's going to assist and help at a birth, they need to know and understand and see and witness that normal mechanism happening. Because when things go wrong in labour, 
Um, so the contractions aren't working well or the baby's got itself in an awkward position. We can't tell that if we don't know what we should normally be expecting to happen. So sometimes when we go in to see a woman in labour, perhaps the progress of her labour is quite slow. So she's in the first stage of labour, which is when the cervix, the neck of the womb has to open up to 10 centimetres and things might be going a bit slowly And we'll do an internal examination, a vaginal examination to see what's happening. And one of the things we're feeling is we're trying to feel the soft spots and the bones of the baby's head to see what position the baby's head is in and which way it's looking. And we're also looking to see is there lots of swelling on top of the baby's head? Because if there's lots of swelling, we know those contractions are good because they're pushing the baby's head down and causing the swelling. Whereas if there's no swelling at all, we know that could mean the contractions aren't very strong or aren't frequent enough. So sometimes as obstetricians, you'll see us when we do an internal examination look very strange We're trying to imagine what position this baby's head is in from what we're feeling with the tips of our fingers. And I know that I often turn my head. So I may shut my eyes and I may start turning and rotating my head to think about what position is the baby's head in with my own head. And I sometimes wonder what the women think when I'm doing this because I'm always thinking what is the baby's head doing and trying to imagine it in relation to what I'm feeling with my fingers. And then from that, one of the commonest causes for slow labour is actually for a baby to be occipito-posterior, so back to back. And from this examination, I can tell what I think needs to happen. How can I give advice and support this woman and hopefully correct things back to normal. Another reason that we're sometimes called in is when a woman's tired. She's been pushing perhaps for an hour and a bit or longer and we're not seeing that crowning is happening. The baby's head isn't moving down in the way we wanted. Perhaps we're worried about the baby's heartbeat or perhaps Um, the woman is exhausted or perhaps there is concern because the woman's developing a temperature and we might need to go in and think about an assisted birth. Sometimes it's very difficult when you're called in to do nothing. So you may be called in by one of the midwives because they're worried and sometimes you'll go in and you'll think, yeah, I'm worried too. I need to get on with this, I need to talk to this woman and I need to help this baby out. But sometimes you'll go in and you'll think, no, I'm not worried, I think this is okay, I think this baby's going to come and I don't actually need to do anything. So sometimes what I do is I support the midwives or I support the more junior obstetricians in actually standing back and doing nothing. And sometimes I do this by leaving the room and popping out and saying, I'll be back in 10 minutes or so. And I want to see, I'll say to the woman, I want to see more of your baby's head or I want to be able to see your baby's head next time I come in. Or I may say, 
actually, on this occasion, I'm going to stay in the room and I'm going to help support and encourage this woman. I might suggest some different positions that she might get into. Or I might say, well, I think you might need a little bit of help. I think you can do this yourself, but I'm going to get everything ready just in case. So I might slowly move and get the trolley I need of equipment I need and start to gradually get her in the right position and clean her and get the equipment ready in the hope that she'll beat me to it and that the baby will be born without my help. And we do that quite a lot, um, quite a lot of supporting and just being on standby, just being there just in case. And sometimes the midwives will tell us when they're worried, when they've got a woman who maybe she bled a lot after having her last baby or the baby's shoulders were a bit difficult to birth the last time. And we'll hang around outside the door and she'll say, if I pull my buzzer, I need you to come in and this is the likely situation. And we'll just hover until we know that baby's safely out and she doesn't need us. So bizarrely, quite a lot of what I do can be actually to do nothing. And sometimes that can go as far as taking a woman to theatre. Perhaps we're worried about the baby's heartbeat and we need to go to theatre and we need to go to theatre quite quickly and we're telling the woman we might need to do a caesarean. And we might give that drug I mentioned to butylin that stops the contractions because we're worried about the baby's heartbeat. And then by the time we've got round to theatre, 10, 15 minutes later, that medication is working. The baby's heartbeat is normal again. And it takes a lot of courage when you've rushed a woman round to theatre to then say to her and her partner, actually, do you know what? I think your baby's actually doing fine now. And actually, I think to do a cesarean at this point wouldn't be the right thing to do. And actually, I think we should go back to the room and wait. And that's brave. And that's brave, but necessary. It wouldn't have been okay to stay in the room with a very worrying heartbeat because it takes time to get to theatre. So we had to take that decision to move. But to say, no, I'm not going to go ahead takes experience. And to gain the confidence of a couple when they've been so worried and you've told them we've got to go to theatre right now and get this baby out for them to believe you and trust you and trust your judgment that you know what you're doing and actually it's okay and we don't need to do this after all is a big deal. So often I think, sometimes I think the most value added thing I can do is to do nothing or to tell my junior colleagues they don't need to do something or to tell a midwife, no, it's okay, you don't need me. And that's where experience is invaluable. So that brings me to today's zesty bit. And today's zesty bit is just that. Sometimes the most important thing is to do nothing. To have the confidence, to safely gain people's trust, stand back, and do nothing, and wait for things to be okay, wait for things to work them out, wait for the baby to be born, 
giving things time, time for the labour to progress, the baby to rotate, or time for the measures you've given to take effect to allow that baby not to be distressed. Being in a room or being outside a room, giving other members of the team confidence to get on with their job, just being there, being present, just in case, ready to assist, but often not actually needing to. So if you're a midwife or junior obstetrician, perhaps some of your colleagues support you to do that. Or if you're more senior, perhaps you're supporting others to do that. And if you're a woman, that might be why there are more people than you perhaps wanted ideally at your birth. It may be that the senior person who's standing there doing nothing isn't just standing there as a voyeur and looking at your birth, but they're standing there giving the more junior members of the team that confidence, taking away that responsibility from someone who perhaps might otherwise be doing an assisted birth or doing a cesarean unnecessarily. So just bear that in mind when perhaps there are other people there or a second midwife is asked to come into the room or a doctor is asked to come in and give an opinion that that's okay, that that may be protecting you and your baby by doing nothing at all. So hopefully today's episode has given you a little bit more detail about the difference between an obstetrician and a midwife that puts in context some of the things I'm talking about and gives you a little bit of a better understanding of what my job actually is. So I do hope you've enjoyed listening to the OBS pod. If you have, please do leave me a review, subscribe and join me again to explore more about the day-to-day life of an NHS obstetrician. Please do share what you've enjoyed about listening, and particularly if you've done anything differently as a result. I would like to confirm that although I'm talking about my experiences in my working life, there is no intention to identify any specific woman or family under my care. I take confidentiality very seriously. If you want more information about me, I can be found on Twitter at FWMaternity. And do check out the MATEX hashtag, M-A-T-E-X-P, as well as our website, matex.org.uk, for ideas on how to improve women's experience of maternity care. Thank you for listening. <laughs>